So 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become un not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the, law, the, law, the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason... God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Stand firm. But we also always, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you, He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shirley. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to you if you're watching online as well. I'm Colin. I'm the pastor. Great to have you with us. And thanks for those. Yeah, we did drive back from Geelong yesterday. Got back about 11.30. So thanks for those of you that were praying for us with that. 
Let me pray again as we hear. Lord, um, this is um, at first glance a difficult looking passage. So I pray you'll just help us to see what's there. Um, teach us and form us and assure us this morning for your glory. Amen. Well, have you ever been completely fooled by something? I remember when I was at Bible college, at lunchtime we had um, announcements. And one April Fool's Day, we managed... Thursday afternoons were ministry formation. We did like stuff to help you become good pastors, I guess. We managed to convince a few people that ministry training this week was going to be liturgical dancing. And so everyone should bring the leotards and the leg warmers and things like that. But some receptions really worry us, don't they? I think I've got a slide for this, Graham. So the latest targeting scams report has revealed that Australians lost a record $3.1 billion dollars to scams in 2022, an 80% increase. Um, and there's a quote here from the ACCC, Australians lost more money to scams than ever before in 2022, but the true cost of scams is much more than a dollar figure, as they also cause emotional distress to victims, their families and businesses. Well, today's passage we're looking at is we're thinking about waiting vigilantly to make sure we're not scammed for eternity by lies, to instead hold firmly to the truth about Jesus. We're in the middle of this second letter to the Thessalonians, and this is a church born in the midst of persecution and opposition. And we saw last week how the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter in about 50 AD, he was encouraged by the fact that they were persevering, Encourage them that God works through our trials and opposition that we face to strengthen us and grow us and to bring him glory. Suffering that brings good. And he encouraged them that in the end, God will make everything right when Jesus returns to judge. So now in chapter 2, we see they've been unsettled, alarmed by some false teaching that's arisen, probably from within them, their own ranks. And there's an outline in your leaflet. We're going to see what it is that they're worried about, what they actually should and shouldn't be worried about, and why we need to be vigilant. And, and we'll remind ourselves of the truth that we're to hold on to, to help us in our waiting well for Jesus' return. And really what I want to answer, answer the question this morning, while we wait for Jesus' return, what are the real dangers for us? And how do we make sure they don't defeat us? What are the real dangers and how do we make sure they don't defeat us? So, first heading. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. See, someone somehow has rattled the Thessalonians' cage, hasn't he? Verse 1 and 2, they've been saying that the day of the Lord, so a day when Jesus returns to gather all who believe in him into perfect eternity, escaping judgment, somebody's saying that's already happened. So, if you're still here, that means... Oh no, I've missed the boat. So Paul needs to calm them down and reassure them. And there's some funny stuff in today's passage, but if at the end of today we've not calmed you down and reassured you, then I've not done my job properly. All right, so verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. In other words... Don't worry, Jesus can't have returned because there's two things that have got to happen before he does. Like two kind of security checks to make sure you don't get scammed. There's got to be a rebellion 
And there's got to be this man of lawlessness has got to be revealed. So what is this rebellion? Who is this man of lawlessness? Now, you can find oodles of theories about all of that. There are plenty of rabbit holes you can disappear down, and I recommend that you don't bother. All these ideas about the likely identity of the nature of this rebellion and the man of lawlessness. Because in the end, don't bother, because in the end they're just guesswork. Just people making guesses. And you know what the problem with most of the guesses is? Is that they make us unsettled and alarmed, which is exactly the opposite thing of what Paul is trying to do in this, in, by bringing them up in this passage. So it seems, as we read this, it, it's a bit of a head-scratcher because it feels like, I think, I think we are picking up on a conversation Paul has already had with the Thessalonians, and we just don't get to hear the rest of it. So it's like overhearing someone on the bus or in the shops or something. Verse 5, Paul said he told them this before, I used to tell you, has a sense of, well, this is stuff we went over, over and over. Remember when I was with you, we went over and over this. So to settle them, to stop them being deceived, he takes them back to his apostolic teaching. The teaching that he's got special authority because he's an eyewitness of Jesus. Takes them back to the word of God. Words we've got recorded for us in the Bible. So that's what we're going to do, to be clear. We can, so, to see what we can definitely say from the text in front of us that, um, that God had kept for us. And that's, that's really the general principle. When you're reading weird stuff in the Bible, that you think, well, there's a bunch of stuff I don't know. What can I definitely say from this text? Okay. So verse 3, this man of lawlessness is the man doomed to destruction. Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called for or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming him to be God, himself to be God. So this is a man totally opposed to God and his good holy law or instruction. And not only that, he wants to set himself up in God's place. And he mentions a temple there, doesn't he? Setting himself up in God's temple. What temple is he on about? Could, could he be looking forward to the destruction of the temple that will happen in 70 AD? Or perhaps he's referring to someone coming up from within the church. As Paul writes in AD 50, someone desecrating God's temple like this has already happened three times. The most recent one being Caligula installing a statue of himself in AD 40. So maybe Paul is just saying this guy is going to be that kind of offensive, anti-God kind of character. But we just, in the end, we hold up our hands and say, we just don't know who he will be, but we do know what kind of character he will be. A rebel against God, in verse 9, in league with Satan. And there are heaps of other bits of scripture we could look at describing someone like this coming just before Jesus' return. And when we, when we check scripture about this man of lawlessness, the message, there's a consistent message that's always the same. That this man of lawlessness is doomed to destruction. That we don't need to worry because our second he heading, things will get worse, but then they'll get better. Things will get worse, but they will get better. Looking at verses 6 to 8. Again, we seem to have missed half the conversation. Paul refers to someone or something restraining this man of lawlessness and his work 
And so the Thessalonians know, have a good idea of what he's talking about. So verse 6. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, who is this restrainer? Again, lots of ideas. Could it be the Roman Empire that kept sort of law and order generally? Could it be law and order and government in general? Um, the most supported idea, if you go reading about this, and I think this is the best idea because it comes from the Bible, is that the restrainer is the archangel Michael. Because if you read Daniel 12, you'll find him doing that kind of thing. But again, we don't really know. But what is clear, what the Thessalonians need to know, and what we need to know, is that God is in control and that he is restraining evil and lawlessness until the verse 6, the proper time. And we know in that from our own experience, don't we, that lawlessness is influencing the here and now. It's not a surprise. I mean, to me, the blindest faith of all is humanism, secular humanism, the idea that humanity keeps improving and will save ourselves. Because whenever you remove the rule of law, or whenever you make the law and order evil, human beings' default thing is to abuse and murder one another. It's just what we do over and over in history. So we're to expect that there are people and spiritual powers working against God. We shouldn't expect everything to be hearts and flowers. It's not fluffy kittens. It's more like being a crash test dummy. But we shouldn't be defeatist, like, oh, what's the point of even trying? Because God is at work to restrain evil. God is at work to save his people and gather his church. And if you stop and think about it, why on earth should what this church in today's society exist? Why should 14 churches in our network exist? It's all highly unlikely except that God is restraining evil and is at work amongst us. But what we're experiencing now is kind of a PG-rated edit of what will be the R18 full movie that comes just before Jesus returns. The lawlessness we experience now, near Jesus, near, when it's near Jesus' return, we'll see on steroids, unrestrained, in full view. But again, verse 8, we don't need to worry. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with it's the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So not a big, long struggle, not a big battle, not some long voyage. Just Jesus' breath defeating. Because, because Jesus gave himself up for us on the cross, he just needs to speak. From Philippians verse two, uh, sorry, chapter two, verse eight, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what's the result of that? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, including this man of lawlessnesses. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
Jesus taking on himself the penalty of all our lawlessness, unholiness, means that evil can't have the last laugh. Whatever happens to us here, nothing can take away our place of perfect joy with Jesus. So Jesus will return, he will win, and he will make everything right. So in the meantime, Satan will keep peddling the same old lies. That's our next section. The same old lies. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. So Satan in the Bible, he's a spiritual being who rebelled against God. And he's absolutely opposed to God and his purposes. So at the end, things will be worse then. But we can learn from then how Satan works now. So we can be on our guard, be a bit streetwise. Verse 9 again. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. So lies, deceit, that's Satan's weapons used against us. I think if you were um, to grow up watching horror movies and stuff, like I have, um, they, uh, movies, books, art, um, tell you to look out for monsters, weird occult stuff, really spooky stuff. But Satan's work doesn't come looking obviously evil or spooky. Usually it comes looking really ordinary, maybe even attractive, often actually religious-looking, sugar-coated to distract us from Jesus. So, for example, somebody gets supernaturally healed. It's a miracle. Uh, a disaster is supernaturally averted. Oh, it's, a, it's a sign from God, surely. It could be, but not necessarily. Satan can use miracles as supernatural to deceive, to distract us from trusting in Jesus and turn our attention to ourselves or anywhere apart from Jesus. So the miracles and the supernatural are just like other common grace things that God gives everyone, like food, or resources, music. These things aren't inherently in and of themselves good or bad, but can be used for God's purposes or Satan's purposes. Same with miracles. So before we get too impressed with the miraculous, too carried away pursuing the miraculous, we need to hear that warning. Miracles can also be Satan's work. But we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be worried about that. Just wise and on our guard. Just on our guard that just because something is on a Christian website or spoken or packaged to sound like teaching from God, just because it's accompanied by signs and wonders, doesn't mean it is from God. So how do we tell the difference? Well, just always ask ourselves, does this serve the truth or does it serve the lie? That is, does whatever we're taken on board move us towards Jesus, thinking about him more, Begin him up in our lives more? Or does it take us away from him and cause us to be talking about something else? Does it cause us to love Jesus more 
or distract us from him. And Paul tells us, wickedness deceives those who are perishing. See, wickedness comes coated in sugar, dressed nicely, looking attractive. So what same old lies might Satan be trying to tell us? I can think of loads, but here's just a few. How about this one? Jesus is great, but you also need this sort of thing, whatever it is. Maybe Jesus is great, but you need health, wealth, and happiness. You need more of the Holy Spirit. You need more faith. Or you need, maybe you've got enough faith, but you need better quality faith or something like that. And church history is littered with extra requirements like that being added to the gospel. All things which basically lead you to try and save yourself, which in the end is idolizing yourself. Uh, the flip side of that can't lie is, look, you've made a commitment to Jesus. You're safe in his kingdom now. It doesn't really matter how you behave. But that can never work because then you'll end up enslaved by sin again, dedicated to the very things that Jesus came to save you from. Again, making yourself your own God. Or how about the lie, God is not good. He hasn't got your best interests at heart. You should just look inside yourself, find out who you really are, and express yourself. Don't hold back because denying yourself is really bad for you. Why would, you want, why would a good God want to deny your happiness? Again, lies. The truth is God loves us so much. God is so committed to our joy. He sent Jesus to die in our place. Jesus is everything we need and more. And if we have him, we're not missing out. We're not missing out. It's as we deny ourselves to follow him, ironically, that we truly find ourselves, that we find true life. So those are just a few examples of the lies we're thrown at all the time. Following the lies serving ourselves, pursuing lawlessness, that traps and enslaves us. And Paul's pretty stark here. There's no middle ground. There's two options. Love the truth, love Jesus and be saved, or love the lives, love lies and perish. Verse 10, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that it will, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. See, at heart, people perish because they refuse to be saved, preferring the lie. But then it says God sends a delusion. Doesn't sound that sounds a little bit unfair, doesn't it? Well, notice that that delusion comes after persistent refusal to believe the truth about God. So it's a bit like a parent who finds the teen having a cigarette and then makes them smoke the entire packet there and then to put them off for good. A bit like that, not quite like that, but a bit like that. God will hand people over to the lies that they so desperately want, so much so that they can no longer choose to believe the truth and so perish. It's kind of a catalyst to push things to the extreme of how they already are. 
God causes people to suffer from their own choices. And it's a partial judgment to warn us of the final judgment that is to come. And give us the chance to turn back to Jesus and avoid the scam. Because God isn't messing about. He won't tolerate wickedness forever. If you haven't chosen to love the truth, to love Jesus, don't leave it too long. If you don't know enough about him yet to to know that truth, please look into him and we can help you do that. And I'm confident if you do, you'll see why he's worth loving. So be on our guard against Satan's lies. There's an underlying assumption in this passage that two things are true at the same time. That one thing is that we humans are morally responsible for our choices of loving or rejecting the truth. Um, Yet there are also, also true that there are spiritual forces opposed to God at work as well. And so there are sensible things that we can do in our battle with sins. Um, We can switch our brains on and work out, when I go there, when I'm with that person, when I do that thing, I'm prone to sin and plan in accordance with that to not sin. But that's not all there is to it. It's not just down to us. There's uh, things working against us. So we must pray because there are powers at work that we can't see and we can't control going out of their way to deceive us. Uh, But we can be confident they just don't stand a chance against Jesus. It's a really uneven battle, so just pray. Our next heading, we can give God thanks for the same old truth, the same old truth. These poor old Thessalonians, right? They've been worried that they'd missed out on Jesus' return. So why didn't Paul just say, no, it's all right, you haven't. Why does he go into all this extra stuff about what will happen near the end and how Satan works and all that? Well, it's so that, verse 15, they will stand firm in the gospel. It's so that they don't get conned into giving up on Jesus. So now he reminds them of this, that gospel. The gospel that if we love Jesus, we can be absolutely sure of our salvation. We can be certain because, verse 18, God chose us to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctified there means God chose us to set us apart to be with him in eternity by believing in Jesus. And so there's a tension there, isn't there? God chose us to be saved, set apart by his Spirit, and we are saved by believing in the truth. God chose us, and we're saved by believing. And it's a tension the Bible never tries to resolve. It's just there to give assurance to Christians. Like train tracks, both truths stand side by side, together. Neither You can't get rid of either one and still be biblically true. God is in control, and we can only be saved because of his spirit working in us. Yet we are also fully morally responsible for our own choice to believe the truth or believe the lies. Here's a quote for you from uh, J.I. Packer, a famous theologian. Helps us understand it, I think. The Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they're not elect, they're not the chosen ones. 
but because they neglect the great salvation and because they will not repent and believe. The last judgment will, be, will abundantly prove that it is not the want of God's election so much as laziness, the love of sin, unbelief, and unwillingness to come to Christ, which ruins the souls that are lost. God gives men what they choose, not the opposite of what they choose. Those who choose death, therefore, have only themselves to thank that God did not give them life. Notice verse 14, how we are saved. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. People are saved through hearing and responding to the gospel. God has an amazing plan, a glorious plan to remove sin and evil and reunite everything in Jesus, sharing in his perfect goodness and glory. And in God's wisdom, the way he wants people to join in that glory, get on board, is by ordinary people like you and me sharing the good news of Jesus so that people can believe the truth. And that takes the pressure off us, doesn't it? Because God does all the saving. God warms people's hearts to Jesus by his spirit so that they believe the message. We just have to share it, not knowing who will respond positively or not. And the key instruction to the Thessalonians waiting for waiting well for Jesus' return, have a look at verse 15. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. Stand firm. Hang on to the gospel. If someone tries to add to it or take away from it, resist. And we've got all the apostolic eyewitness teachings about Jesus we need in the Bible to check everything that's thrown at us against that. To endure this tough life of faith we've chosen, to withstand all the tricks of the devil, we don't need to graduate from the gospel and learn some special extra knowledge Christianity. We don't need to graduate from the simple message of Jesus the Messiah, who lived and called us to follow him, died and was resurrected, who now reigns from heaven and will return to judge. We don't need the DVD extras. We don't need some special book to tell us something new. Just need to stand firm in the gospel. And as we do, we are our final heading. Steady now. We're steady now. We don't need to be unsettled or alarmed. Look, hard times will come, no doubt. The powers of lawlessness are at work, restrained, but still at work. But they won't win. So hold tight to the truth you know and have believed. You don't need anything extra. And Paul puts his money where his mouth is in this very letter. He returns to the gospel, verse 16. God has loved us by his grace as a free, undeserved gift. He's given us eternal encouragement and good hope. Enough encouragement for eternity. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can take that away. I remember hearing an interview with um, someone who'd had a novelty hit record 
in the UK, number one record. I think I can't remember who it was, but I know it was an awful record. And all the music press can all bag it and put this guy down. But he said, no one can take away from me that I had the best-selling single in this country. Nothing could take that away from him. Nothing can take the good news away from us. We've got enough good news for a lifetime and beyond. Nothing can truly harm us because we're in Jesus and he already has the victory. Verse 17, God has not left us on our own. He will strengthen us to glorify in him in what we say and what we do. So we don't need to guilt ourselves into holding tight to Jesus, thinking, oh, if I give up on Jesus in any way, I'll be punished. Because that will just lead us trying to be good enough to save ourselves. And we don't need to hang on to Jesus from a sense of pride, as in, I'm a good person, and as such, I will remain a Christian. Because that will just lead us to look down on others when we're doing well, or be devastated when we're doing badly. Now, we're better to cultivate our confidence and our joy in what we already have. God's promise of sharing in his perfect son, Jesus' glory. Cultivate our confidence and joy in God's promise of glory. Satan may accuse us, may pretend to have a better offer, but he can't offer the life that Jesus can offer us. Because Jesus gave his life up for us. Satan can't overcome the truth that life given up to Jesus is the fullest, best life there is. Life that leads to glory, not perishing. Don't be unsettled or alarmed. Stand firm and hold fast to the gospel. Don't be unsettled or alarmed. Stand firm and hold fast to the gospel. Let's pray. Well, God, whoever this uh, man of lawlessness is, uh, this rebellion and whatnot, um, we recognize in our own lives uh, some lawlessness and chaos that we'd rather wasn't there. Please strengthen us, Lord, to uh, live godly lives in in response to your grace. Help us not to be discouraged, but keep persevering by holding firm by holding on to the gospel. Please help us see uh, where we're being lied to by Satan, where our beliefs and practices have gone a, bit off, gone a bit off. Turn us back to Jesus, trusting and relying on him. Amen.